what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This episode of The Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents as well as caring for ourselves. I am Frances Hall, Founder and Executive Director of ACAP, Adult Children of Aging Parents. In this podcast, we're talking about something that so many people are interested in. Is it normal or is it abnormal? Aging-related memory changes. That question comes up over and over and over. Dr. Mia Young, my interviewee, is a geriatrician and clinician researcher in dementia care at Atrium Wake Forest Baptist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Mia is the director of the Wake Forest House Call Program, a program that allows homebound older adults in the community who have complex medical issues to receive medical care at home. Dr. Mia also is a researcher. She is the principal investigator for several National Institute of Health-funded clinical trials within Wake Forest's Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. And if that were not enough to keep her busy, she also hosts her own podcast called the Ask Dr. Mia Conversations on Aging Well, which is available on all major podcast platforms. Dr. Mia was inspired to pursue geriatric medicine from her unique upbringing with her grandparents and her extended family in China until she was age 12. She is a primary care doctor and a memory specialist, and she practices the full range of medicine from home to the hospital, as well as conducting impactful research for the benefit of persons living with dementia and their care partners. She brings her heart and her personal experiences, as well as her her academic understanding and professional work to this conversation. Dr. Mia, we are so honored to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francis. It's an honor for me to be here. Uh, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and your listeners uh, from adult children uh, caring for aging parents. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's just jump into it. We hear so much about Alzheimer's and dementia these days. But so so often what we hear is that, you know, I've misplaced my keys or I don't remember where why I came into a room or even that, you know, lost a car in a parking lot. And whether that's us or whether that's a loved one, it's immediately we go to, oh, my goodness, I must be having dementia. I must have Alzheimer's. Talk about what are the typical signs of Alzheimer's or dementia <coughs> excuse me, versus normal signs of aging. 
<coughs> well, that's an excellent question. Yeah, wow. that that is a difficult uh, question to answer because everyone's memory capacity is so different. Um, there are very few kind of very global, normal age-related items that are um, the same for everyone in terms of what's normal, because what's normal for one person may be different uh, and not normal for another person. I would say globally, things that we do know that gets worse with age are things like needing a little bit more time to process information and having a harder time dealing with multitasking as we get older. And we're all affected by, you know, distraction, what we pay attention to, as well as our, you know, baseline cognition and memory. So the things that you mentioned, like, you know, misplacing your keys or going into a room and not remember what to do, those sound pretty benign in terms of those are very common things that you don't have to be an older adult to deal with, Um you know, I, I forget where I put my keys from time to time and also am directionally challenged and cannot remember <laughs> where I have parked my car in the, sh in the shopping center. Um, but I think for adult children who are caring for their parents who have dementia or Alzheimer's disease, each one of those incidents seem to be uh, much more anxiety provoking than perhaps someone who does not have an aging parent that they're caring for. So I would say the first thing is just to take a deep breath and say, you know, just because I can't find my keys today does not mean that I'm going to also develop dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And, and just to also clarify, because there is a, a lot of uh, confusion in the lay public, that dementia to me means that someone is having a cognitive impairment that is affecting their daily function. So for example, they're having difficulty managing their finances or remembering to take their medicines because of their memory. Uh, and that Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's dementia is the most common type of dementia, but there are other types of dementia out there. But because Alzheimer's disease and dementia are used very interchangeably, uh, oftentimes that is a point of confusion. Right, right. I, I'm wanting to kind of go, shoo. So in other words, so in other words, when I lose my car in a parking lot. Deep or, breath, Francis, deep breath. I have to use my little clicker to find my keys. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Or my phone. I guess I can use my key clicker to find my phone. Yeah. So thank you for that reassurance. Okay. So where really is the dividing line? You mentioned um, that, that the cognitive issues begin impacting daily living, the ADLs for people who are um, familiar with that term. So is that the dividing line or are there some other things that, um, that, that people just need to be aware of? And, I, and I'm thinking particularly for those of us who are caregivers for a loved one. What, you know, what, where's the dividing line? Yeah, that's a great question as well. So generally when people 
come and see me for a memory evaluation, I'm trying to put them into kind of three broad categories. There is what's normal related to aging. Um, like I mentioned, a little bit slower in terms of processing a few times, you know, misplacing things, but things that are not happening very common. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum is what I mentioned about dementia, and meaning that there is some noticeable changes in terms of daily activities and these instrumental activities of daily living or IADLs are kind of the things that we learn as a teenager, hopefully. Some of us never learned some of those things, like men of a certain generation who never learned to cook. So, you know, that wouldn't be a fair <laughs> IADL to a to measure. But generally, these are things like managing your finances, doing your taxes, um, managing your medications, which can only get more complex as we get older, um, driving, cooking, cleaning, shopping, uh, using the phone, all of these things we should learn kind of before we become an independent adult. And, and those are tend to be the things that uh, first gets impacted with memory changes um, as we age and as we uh, perhaps are on the early signs of dementia. So there is an intermediate category of people who have what's called mild cognitive impairment. And this is really a gray zone that uh, sometimes you really cannot tell uh, what is normal aging versus what is mild cognitive impairment without some sort of cognitive tests, as well as a detailed history and physical exam from someone who uh, is evaluating your memory. So people who have this middle bucket of mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, they do have some changes, perhaps both subjective, uh, meaning they notice it, and objective, meaning on some sort of memory test that we don't think is just normal aging. And a lot of times these memory tests are compared with people of their similar age, level of education, uh, and race and ethnicity, because there are some tests that were, you know, exclusively really developed in a Caucasian population uh, in, say, Canada, <laughs> like the MOCA test, um, and I'll send you those show uh, so those links in the show notes. But uh, because of people's age and education, there are norms that we try to put people in a comparison with on how they do on the on the memory test, and if the norms are not well established then it could be challenging to tell, you know, what is truly normal age-related memory changes versus what is mild cognitive impairment. So for someone who is, you know, very highly educated, their baseline level of education and their intellect may be really high, and they might notice a change in their memory, but they still might perform in quote-unquote the normal range for their age and education. And the, the other end of the spectrum is also true where if you have a very low level of education or low quality education and the norms of these tests are not developed with your ethnicity and background in mind, then you could be artificially, you know, testing in the mild cognitive impairment range without truly, um, a significant change in your memory. But that's just to say that there is a little bit of 
grayness to to memory testing in general. And it's helpful to kind of think of where you are, you know, as a listener, where you are might fit into those categories. The reason why mild cognitive impairment is of interest is because, you know, this is an area of active research. People are trying to find folks who just have a very little amount of memory changes because, they are trying to find investigational medications or other non-medication-based interventions to see if things would change. Um, and, and I know that um, it can be really difficult to tell, uh, even among you know, some primary care doctors, as to what is truly normal age-related memory changes and what is mild cognitive impairment. And not all of those who have MCI progress into having dementia, but they do have an increased risk. Wow, that's a lot of great information. I would never have thought of there being such a difference in someone who is highly educated versus not not as highly educated and just sort of their baseline and, and the impact of that. I want to get into that assessment in a moment, but let me ask this question first. Um, are there some things that can present as dementia that really are not? And, and I think about when I ask that question, I think about an instance when my own mother had fallen and she was not able to get up from bed. But, you know, once she got into bed, then she wasn't able to get up for several days. And the longer she was in bed, the more profound what appeared to be dementia became to the point that it was really very scary that, that I was seeing it, but she wasn't. She wasn't recognizing it. And when she was finally able to get up and walk literally maybe 30 feet, it was like this miraculous, she was back to her typical self. And it was absolutely phenomenal. So all of that is to, the question really is, are there some things that present like dementia that really are not? And so what should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, so you bring up a really great point in what you observed in your mother. I think just based on the description of what happened, it's most likely that your mother had what's called delirium. Um, delirium is a condition that's related to dementia, but it's different from dementia in the sense that it's usually impacted by some sort of other stressor, uh, a medical illness, an infection, or a fall, um, something that kind of has disturbed the equilibrium of their day-to-day -day life. And delirium can be particularly scary because sometimes people can have hallucinations, seeing things or hearing things that are not there. They can be very confused about where they are, even if they are in the same exact place they have always been, um, and can be tr uh, particularly uh, challenging and scary for family members to witness. There's a lot of interesting research about how delirium is similar or different from dementia. I won't get into all the nitty gritty of that, but just to say that the people who do develop delirium do have a slightly higher risk of developing dementia, but not necessarily. And people who have a little bit of memory problems may be more likely to deliver 
to develop delirium if they're stressed enough. So for example, if I keep you and I up awake for 48 hours without any sleep, we would all be a little bit delirious. But the threshold to become delirious becomes lower and lower, depending on kind of, again, where your baseline cognitive functioning is. For someone who already has mild dementia, it doesn't take a lot of stressor to put them in a delirious state. And delirium is something that can get better with time. Um, So like how she was where once hopefully her pain was well controlled and she was able to walk and get herself up up and about. Delirium can clear up, Um, not always, but delirium can kind of get better uh, after that acute illness or stressor is resolved. Uh, But there are other things that can present very similar to uh, concerning memory changes that are suggestive of dementia. And those are things like untreated anxiety or depression. Um, So their attention is lacking or they can't really focus on what they're doing because they have a mood issue. Um, Hearing loss is very common, particularly in older men. Um, Untreated hearing loss can affect a lot of different things, not just memory, uh, which also makes sense. If you don't ever hear it in the first place, you can't remember it later on. And we do know that age-related hearing loss, we tend to lose the higher pitches first, which means uh, what their wives have been saying have always been true, that they have selective hearing (laughs) uh, because women have higher pitches than men. Um, Other things that are really uh, major things to consider are medications. And these are both prescribed medications and over-the-counter medications. For example, any sort of sleep aid that has PM in it, like, you know, Tylenol PM or um, go to sleep, easy sleep, usually those contain a medication that's similar to Benadryl, uh, which can block a common chemical we all have in our brain for memory and attention. So anticholinergic medications are very common and can be in multiple different types of medications. So that's one one thing to evaluate for. And then there are some common um, medical conditions that can also impact memory besides obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, That's where people may have reduced oxygenation to their brain when they're asleep, um, which can be snoring or uh, pauses in their breathing. This is usually hard to hard to tell if you sleep by yourself, but usually your partner will notice that. And then um, low thyroid uh, functioning or low vitamin B12 levels. Uh, Those are other things that we commonly check for to make sure that this is a true memory problem and not a confounding condition. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, as I remember also, like UTIs, can't they present like uh, memory issues? So yeah, the the urinary tract infections can definitely be a contributor to what I call the delirium. Um, Those kind of acute episodes where they seem to change. Um, I I find the topic of UTI particularly interesting because there is a lot of controversy about what is truly a urinary tract infection, particularly if it's in an older postmenopausal woman, Um, just because there are studies that have looked at 
urine samples from older women, whether they're doing fine or they're doing not fine. And the majority of the time, we all have some bacteria in our urine, which becomes difficult to tell when there's a change in behavior or change in their cognition, whether that be, that bacteria in their urine is truly to be blamed on their change in cognition. Well, that's really interesting because everything I hear is, oh, UTIs can present like dementia and all of that and, oh, avoid uh, UTIs. So, so that's really that's really quite interesting. Yeah, I think I think that's probably from a healthcare system perspective, we probably way over diagnose urinary tract infections. And, you know, we can have a whole nother topic about urinary tract infections, uh, because there are other confounding conditions that can also present like urinary tract infections that are not true infections. Oh my. Okay. So that's, that's our next podcast. Part two, part two. Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's go back. You talked a little bit ago about the assessment. Um, how the, the assessment of, is this really a cognitive issue or is this really not a cognitive issue? Um, so what, talk about the process that a healthcare provider may use to actually determine whether there is a cognitive issue going on. Exactly. So I would say this is what we call in, in the healthcare world a, a thorough history and physical exam. So we would gather a detailed history from not only the person who is experiencing memory changes, but also from a reliable collateral. So someone who knows this person really well, have frequent interactions with them, and kind of can notice things that the person with memory loss may not be able to notice because it's it's hard to ask someone who doesn't remember what they don't remember about their memory loss. So it's really crucial to get a reliable history from uh, from someone who knows them well. And, and I think another challenging thing in our healthcare system is that our healthcare system is really not built to gather history from two people separately and at the same time, uh, because when you go into a doctor's office, usually, you know, you're just a person talking to the doctor, you don't usually bring someone else with you. But that can really change as people have memory problems, um, to be able to provide the full picture of what's going on. And oftentimes, I hear from a lot of very frustrated family members that say, well, I went to the doctor and the doctor just asked my mom what she thinks is going on with her memory. And she said, everything is great. And meanwhile, I can't even get a word in. And I don't want to say something to offend my mom right in front of her. So it was just a very frustrating interaction where that, you know, no one is served in that scenario because the, the older adult with memory problems thinks everything is fine. <laughs> when they're not, the clinician doesn't get the full picture. And then the family member is frustrated about this whole interaction. So I try to teach people um, and trainees who I work with that it, one of the biggest things that they can take away from, you know, learning from how I do things is to really talk with a reliable 
family member or friend separately so that they feel free to kind of bring up all the things that they're noticing uh, without having to say it all in front of the loved one. There are very few people who will be totally fine with you mentioning everything they have noticed and you may have already talked about the things you've noticed with your loved ones. But I would say the majority of the time, there is some sort of tension between the older adult who is experiencing experiencing memory loss and their family member who wants to kind of point out the things that they may not remember. Um, so that's that's the, the history and kind of the caveat about the history. And then we usually do a very thorough physical exam, including a neurologic exam. And the purpose of that is to really try to find some of these confounding issues like, you know, are, uh, have there been a, a stroke that can be detected on a physical exam, uh, a brain scan. Uh, it doesn't have to be a dedicated MRI of the brain, but oftentimes that is the best picture of the brain to make sure that there are no, you know, rare but still possible things like a brain tumor or other things that can present like memory problems, lab work to evaluate for, you know, say the low vitamin B12 or low thyroid that I mentioned earlier, and then some sort of cognitive and mood screening tests. So memory tests that you perform on paper and pencil and on paper, um, and then some questions uh, asking the person uh, to rate how they're feeling in terms of their mood. I would say those are the main components of a comprehensive memory evaluation. That's really good information because so often we don't know. Or when my mother was tested, I was asked to step out of the room so so they could do the testing just directly with her. Um, if It would be wonderful for all doctors, all healthcare professionals and providers to really spend that time separately with, with us, the, care, the caregiver and the care recipient. But the reality is that doesn't happen all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and usually I would talk I will be talking with you while your mother was getting a memory testing. So that's kind of how I, I separate people. And I, I make it seem like this is the um, and it is the part of what I do is that I spend some time with each person individually. Um, it does add to the amount of time we are in clinic together, uh, but I think that's a very useful way of asking history that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get if you guys were sitting right next to each other. Absolutely, absolutely. Let me ask you about another another technique, I guess, or strategy, and that is what about if, if for whatever reason, the caregiver <clears throat> thinks that they probably are not going or possibly are not going to have the opportunity to really give that feedback? What about writing a note before the appointment so that the, so that the doctor has that information before even walking in? But it's confidential, you know, it puts the doctor in a really awkward spot, I'm sure, that I've gotten this letter, this note from your daughter, your son or your loved one, and I can't say that to you. Is that, what is that like from a, from a healthcare provider standpoint? Is that helpful? I think it's incredibly helpful, actually, because, you know, if, if, um, 
and to to echo what you have said, it's very rare to have a healthcare professional who is making the time and effort to talk to you separately. So I would say the majority of people are encountering um, a situation where it's hard to get their perspective across. So um, I actually mentioned this in my in my first episode back from season two of Ask Dr. Mia podcast, kind of go into a little bit detail about how to engage with healthcare professionals. And, you know, you can pass them a note, you can call them before that appointment and say, these are the things I really want to tell you confidentially. I don't want to say these things right in front of my loved one, because I don't want to hurt their feelings. But I want you, the healthcare professional, to get the full picture of what's going on. Um, I would say, you know, you can also use the patient portal for good. Uh, the patient portal can be a, a way where you send a confidential message um, to your loved one's healthcare professional and say, these are the things that I was hoping you are aware of before this next appointment. Um, I would say the only thing that's you know, that's potentially not helpful with the portal is that the portal is really difficult to kind of have a back and forth discussion about really sensitive issues like this. It's good if you just want to kind of jot down a few examples of what you have noticed and send that over so that um, the, the, the treating clinician has an idea of what's going on. And it makes them kind of approach that visit in a slightly different way as well. They may spend a little less time, you know, asking your loved one, you know, what do you think is going on? Because most likely they'll say everything is fine. Um, and maybe take some of that visit time, you know, to do the physical exam or to do um, an official memory test and perhaps even call you, the family member on the phone. Um, there are lots of different ways that this can be done. Virtual visits can be good where, you know, if you, the loved one, can be in the same home as your person with uh, memory loss, uh, you may be able to kind of talk with the doctor in the same session uh, by video or by phone uh, and still have that session all kind of about all about your loved one's memory loss. So those are just kind of some examples of other ways to um, get the fuller picture of what's going on to your loved one's treating clinician. Yeah, and that's that's really helpful. And it's really helpful to have that affirmation that what we as a caregiver observes is really meaningful information to provide. Absolutely. And sometimes that's more meaningful than the than the memory tests, because like I mentioned before, those are those have a lot of uh, caveats to how they are graded, and an actual score on paper is never as important to me as how their loved ones say their memory has been doing. If they've been doing, if, you know, because they could have a bad day and they could really bomb their memory test, but if they're doing perfectly fine on their daily lives, then I should say, then I'm not as worried as if the opposite were true. If they were doing fine on the paper test, but their loved one has really noticed some concerning changes in their instrumental activities of daily living, then I think, wow, maybe this test is not hard enough to pick up what's going on in this person who may have, you know, really high level of baseline cognitive function. Right, right. Let me ask about the portal. Uh, uh, medical portals and I do not get along very well. <laughs> I mean, just like regardless of whose office, I just do not seem to get along with them. But you talked about being able to put confidential information into the portal. 
is that something though that it needs to be for a loved one who is not going to access the portal if you're wanting it to be confidential if they if they also are on the portal can they see that confidential information correct so that that will only work if your loved one is not on the portal and you are on the portal as their you know access point um, usually what happens is that the older adult has no interest in being on the portal, but their adult children might be very interested to being on the portal. Uh, it would only work. <laughs> it would only work if if the person with memory loss is not on the portal for you to be communicating that confidential message. Otherwise, if everyone is on the portal, then that is public uh, information. And also, there um, within the past year, there have been recent national laws that went into place where as patients and, and proxy or, or family members who are on those portals, mm-hmm. you can also see the clinician's notes, the full notes that kind of uh, to- uh, document what happened in that visit, which again, is both a, uh, a great thing and a burdensome thing, because now People, the, the lay public is asked to <laughs> interpret, you know, what the doctor is writing in their notes, which can be um, challenging and anxiety provoking in and of itself. Right, right. Absolutely. Thanks for the clarification on that, because I, I wanted to be sure about that. So people, you know. Yeah. So if your if your loved one with memory loss is on, is on the portal along with you and you want to send a message to the doctor, the best way would be probably to um, call them and, and have a kind of have a phone conversation uh, with their, uh, with their treating clinician. Although depending on the portal, sometimes the person who is very savvy on these portals can also see those telephone messages. So it gets a little bit tricky. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Good, good information. Good to know that. Are there some other tips that you would suggest Um, for family members or loved ones who are trying to care for someone with some cognitive uh, limitations or cognitive changes? Yeah, so I I would say, you know, first, uh, I would encourage you to kind of check how you are feeling about all this yourself. Oftentimes we, you know, we focus on our loved one who's experiencing memory loss. Uh, Meanwhile, we're having a lot of other feelings surrounding this, you know, is this going to happen to me? Am I going to get memory loss? I can't, you know, I'm grieving the changes I'm witnessing in my loved one. And, and so I think it's always um, really helpful to just kind of check in with yourself as to how you are feeling about this situation. Um, You know, are you having anxious thoughts and can't sleep and can't function because you're so worried about everything? Um, Because, because, it can get a little bit extra challenging when when the person who is caring for a loved one also have their own mood issues to deal with. Um, and then I think the second point is to check with your loved one's understanding of what's happening. So sometimes people are aware that they're having some memory changes, but they don't really want to talk about it. Um, but you can you can introduce the concept by perhaps talking about their friends or something that they've observed 
served in their social network who've gone through similar things. And the goal is to really um, not cast any sort of judgment, you know, not saying, oh, I can't believe you couldn't remember how to do this the other day, um, but to really kind of establish trust and encourage them to talk about what's important to them. I would say most older adults really prioritize their independence um, and their uh, ability to kind of make decisions for themselves. So you want to approach them in a way that says that you are on the same page as them. You're not antagonizing them, but you're bringing up uh, their understanding of what's happening with the shared goal of being proactive about their health. Um, and then I think step three, after you check with your loved one, and that, that can also really tell you a lot, you know, are they in total denial about what's happening? Uh, are they having some insight? Um, because that can really lead to your step three, which is to kind of talk with other uh, influencers in their life, you know, their spouse, your siblings, other close friends, kind of get a sense of what other people have noticed to, you know, say, is this something we're all noticing and we're just not aware of it? Or is it just really something that I'm noticing, but other people seem to be thinking everything is fine? Because you do want to try to obtain a certain level of consensus that something is going on. Uh, because what oftentimes happens is, you know, one family member will say, you know, mom, I really noticed you've been having some memory problems. And then mom would go talk to her best friend who says, oh, you're totally fine. You know, you have nothing to worry about. You know, don't, don't, don't worry about it. And then you kind of just get stuck in that, you know, it would be much better if, if people can be proactive and, and kind of talk about what's happening and at least not say it in a way that not to dismiss the concerns and say, well, this is what your daughter has noticed. And perhaps the best thing would be to get an evaluation because, you know, it's hard to know exactly what's happening. And there may be lots of other things that are going on that can present like memory loss. You know, and when you're talking about um, checking with friends. Um, I'm also thinking if there if there are several children in the family, adult children, that there can be very very different perspectives of what's going on with mom and dad. Absolutely, particularly depending on the amount of time and the amount of interaction that they each are having. Yeah. yeah, that is a common, common source of conflict among adult children. <laughs> um, and usually, you know, the person who is closest to an, an older parent uh, is the one who noticed the most changes. And the other siblings may need to listen to this podcast to know that uh, <laughs> they need to get on board and believe the sibling that's closest to them. <laughs> good job. Good job. <laughs> because there is all, not always, but in many, many families, there is that difficulty, that struggle. So thank you yeah. for that information. For the person, for the caregiver, or the, particularly the adult child who is the most front and center with this whole uh, with this whole journey exactly exactly <laughs> and sometimes there are changes that are very noticeable over a longer period of time too the reverse could be true you know a, an adult child who is farther away and only sees the um, aging parent you know once every couple of once every couple of months may notice kind of more dramatic changes that the person 
uh, the adult child who's close to them may be thinking, oh, this has been going on for months, but, you know, it may not click in with the child who is farther away until there is a sufficient amount of time span to compare. Yeah. And I guess it's a little bit also like some other situations that that incremental, that small, change. Yeah. small changes aren't nearly as noticeable mm-hmm. uh, as to someone who has some time period and, and sees the, the dramatic change. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Mia, this is excellent information. Thank you so very much for being part of this conversation and for just helping us really understand, you know, how do, how do we navigate this? How do we care well for our loved one? Um, but, but at the same time, make sure that they are getting the care that they need, not just from us, but from medical providers also. So thank you for, for all the work you are doing in this, in this field, but also thank you for, for sharing your insight with us, with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me, Francis. It's been a pleasure. My, uh, truly our joy, our joy. Uh, I want to also thank you, our listeners. Uh, we hope this podcast has been helpful to you, not only for your loved ones, but also for yourself as, as, as we all age. Uh, before we end, we certainly want to say thank you to Pays at Home in Hickory, North Carolina. They are our sponsor for this podcast and for all of our uh, for all of our podcasts, and we are very, very grateful to them. This program is part of the, Net, the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You can find out more of our our caregiver community podcasts on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts. Um, You can also find our podcast on our website, www.acapcommunity.org. If you you look for our podcast there, we hope that you will spend a few minutes and just learn more about ACAP, about our programs, our chapters, and and all the the various things that we have for you, the resources that we have out there for you. And goodness knows, if you know of a podcast topic, that you would like for us to address, please let us know uh, because we would be happy to, to consider that. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our background, our education, our career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one who needs the care, caring for and advocating for that person becomes very personal and extremely important and often very urgent. So please care well for your loved one, but also remember to take care of you, just as Dr. Mia said. Stay well. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.